Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Shahidi, and this is the Evoke Master Speaker Series podcast, where we host open-ended conversations with business leaders and world-class investors who share stories, lessons learned, and market insights. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and please feel free to visit our website at evokeadvisors.com to see videos of these podcasts and to learn more about our firm. Today's special guest is Jeremy Grantham, who co-founded GMO, a leading $60 billion investment manager in 1977. The conversation is wide ranging as Jeremy has a wealth of knowledge on topics such as investment bubbles, value investing, and climate change. And he has been among the few investors ahead of major market inflection points like 2000 and 2008. I hope you enjoy the discussion. we begin, I have to say Jeremy is one of my favorite investors to speak with. His command of history uh, offers a wealth of knowledge, uh, experience, and insight. Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. It's a great pleasure, really. Thank you. Well, let's, let's begin with the single biggest question that we all face. Uh, essentially, nothing else matters unless we can solve this one. Uh, you've studied, talked about, and written, written extensively about climate change. I know it's a passion of yours, something you've been uh, working on for a long time. Uh, please share with us your thoughts on this critical topic. And really, are, are humans doomed or do we stand a fighting chance? Okay, you're grown-ups, so you can uh, stand more than the average dose of uh, reality, I suppose. Uh, and the truth is, we are not going to contain the climate warming of one and a half degrees or two degrees that we are struggling to determine where in the zone over three degrees centigrade uh, we'll end up. And uh, my guess is between three and three and a half degrees centigrade. That will cause an enormous amount of trouble for global societies. Some countries in Africa will be completely destabilized by the situation, the Indian subcontinent will have major troubles due to the increase in heat and humidity. Uh, big chunks of the subcontinent will simply be impractical uh, to live in that uh, outdoor farming for more than three hours on one of the worst days and you drop dead. Uh, that, that zone of basically uninhabitable land is only been one and a half percent. Um, 20 years ago, and it's only a little more than that today, but in 50 years, the scientists calculate it will be 17%, which doesn't sound too bad. And indeed, most of it is in the Sahara, the Amazon deserts in China and, 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 and uh, the Saudi Peninsula. But regrettably, it also includes the entire Indian subcontinent, with the majority of which will be in the zone of really extreme uh, difficulty. And there's 2 billion of them, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, by uh, 2170. And Africa, which will be the other, the zone that feels the great stress, will be about 3 billion or more. So that's 5 billion out of perhaps a total of nine. More than half the world are right in line of fire. So I think it will be stress on those areas and uh, immigration and the pressure on Europe of 
millions of Africans attempting to migrate uh, that will, will be the main political risk uh, that we face and, and uh, a real threat to the well-being of society. So in short, we are going to face um, many problems. What we're fighting for is to avoid uh, existential threats. We're, we're fighting to keep most of the countries stable and to maintain at least a limited amount of economic progress. Okay, and is there, is there anything we can do uh, between now and then to change the, the course of history? Yes, on, on paper, Homo sapiens is completely capable of, of handle, handling this uh, easily. And um, the trouble is that in real life, um, we don't behave very well. So um, that's what we have to deal with. Uh, those people who get the point have to use everything within their power to influence others. We have to propagandize our colleagues. We have to use our influence with the corporations we're associated with. We have to vote intelligently uh, towards those people who get the green greenification of the planet that is required. And uh, you can never do too much. We are protecting the reasonable security of our grandchildren. This is not about philanthropy. This is about sensible, defensive uh, spending. All right. Well, well hopefully we, we turn in that direction before it's too late. So thank you for sharing those thoughts. Uh, let's, let's move on to uh, something that's a little bit uh, more uh, present today. Uh, you, you've, you, you have a remarkable record of calling major uh, market inflection points. Uh, in 1987, uh, Japan was at its high. It was maybe half the market. You owned zero. Uh, in the late 90s, we had the, the tech uh, bubble. Uh, you called that. 2007, the housing bubble, you called that. Uh, I, I remember a memo you wrote in 2009. I think it actually came out the day of the low of the market. Uh, and the title was Reinvest When Terrified. So you've been on the other side as well. Um, so a great history of calling these uh, major inflection points. What would you say is the next one? And do you feel like we're in a bubble today, uh, kind of like what, what we saw in the late 90s with the, with the tech bubble? I, I do think we're in a bubble but I also think it's unlike any other bubble. The great bubbles of history, whether it's the South Sea bubble or 1929 uh, or the tech bubble, you, you take a very good economic situation and you merely extrapolate it um, into the future. And if you do that um, and it actually occurred, the market would be worth very high multiples of book and, and earnings and so on. So it's a very, it's a very simple game. Uh, believe in today's perfect conditions and assume unrealistically, as it turns out, that it will go on for, uh, forever. If you did that today and you extrapolated today's conditions, which are miserable, you would of course have the very opposite of the bubble. So that makes it unique. We're in the highest 5% of PEs and we're in the lowest 5% of of economic conditions today. So there's never been anything like, like that in history. And why has it happened? Uh, we know the trouble is of course COVID 
uh, and, and we know the push on stock prices is a combination of central banks, the Federal Reserve, uh, and, uh, and fiscal spending. And it's global. So we have never had such a global agreement that everybody, every government is looking to spend and every government is looking for their central bank to accommodate. This is an enormous push. And what we discovered long ago is how effective that is at moving stock prices. It's as if every dollar that is not absorbed by the real world flows through line of least resistance, flows through into asset pricing. And uh, that, is, that is what is happening. So we are higher priced today than a year ago when the economy was in decent shape. Now the economy is in really very bad shape and everybody is extend extending the time period for which the damage will last and yet the market goes to new highs. It's, it's a very impressive struggle between the real world of productivity and employment and GDP and the paper world of uh, PE ratios and uh, house prices uh, pushed by uh, easy credit, low interest rates, of course, being key, and, uh, and just plentiful supplies of money uh, flapping around uh, to those people who are likely to buy houses and stocks. It is not necessarily the case uh, at the small business level at all. So this is not necessarily a terrific for the real broad uh, economy, but it is clearly terrific for the stock market. And the question is, does the real world eventually catch up? And since this is novel uh, economy, just like the novel virus, um, you can't be quite as certain as you could in prior bubbles. I described our confidence in prior bubbles as near certain. I wrote a paper called uh, uh, Three Near Certainties for Uncertain Times. That was my title anyway for Fortune in, in 08. And all, the, all of those things, of course, occurred. And you can't be that certain this time because the forces are unique. And... Um, that's going to make life more intellectually interesting. However, my bet would be, of course, that reality will catch up uh, with, uh, with, the, with the high PEs. Okay, and, and expanding on that, part of what's happened is you have these weak, weak economic conditions, no sign of inflation. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a relatively easy playbook for central bankers across the world to cut interest rates, and many of them are at zero or even below, and print money and keep providing stimulus to prop up the economies. Um, and that could last for a while because inflation hasn't reared its ugly head yet. Um, so how does that factor into uh, how you invest in an environment like this, where, where the economic, there's a dis, you know, disconnect between economic conditions um, and markets, as, as you described, but, but the, the cause of that, you know, mostly central bank and fiscal policy can continue for a long time. So, so what, 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 how do investors uh, deal with this? It's important to separate monetary from fiscal spending and uh, FDR type uh, broad-based planning of that kind. I'm a great believer in that. I'm much more suspicious of uh, credit and interest rates 
Let me just point out that uh, we entered an era with Greenspan of a, uh, a fairly decent kink in the cumulative debt curve. It had been drifting up very slowly and then it started to rise very rapidly uh, uh, since his era. And um, what you notice is that despite the fact that the debt ratio per unit of GDP has doubled and tripled um, and will soon quadruple uh, since the first day of Greenspan, the growth rate of the US and the developed world has slowed. So if there was some easy relationship between debt and growth, it should have showed up. And in fact, the reverse has occurred. And that's one of the reasons I'm suspicious. However, government spending is a different matter. And at a time like this, where I think the virus is still worse than people think and will go on for longer, uh, it really is important uh, to use that while you can. As long as, in, as inflation is low, uh, keep up uh, the government spending. As to the point when the market uh, gets jumpy, uh, very hard to read. If you go back to the earlier bubbles and you look at 1929, there was no great event. People have studied that now for <laughs> 90 years and we still haven't found the reason. The best we can come up with is, quote, selling came in from the country, unquote, which means it wasn't New York and Boston and the financial centers. It was the industrial centers of the Midwest. And they were the people who were seeing uh, that the economy was weakening. And they uh, looked at the high prices and the optimism uh, that was everywhere and decided they would, would take some profits. And that was what turned the tide. And then more people decided they would take profits and it spiraled out of control. It was not done by a massive change in the Federal Reserve policy or any government spending program. So that's what you have to be wary about, that in the end, uh, high PEs are an intrinsically nervous and, and, and risky situation where everything is confidence. If you break confidence for any reason, it could be uniquely different this time. It, it has been quite different in each of the bubbles. But if you break confidence and you're way overpriced, uh, you're looking at uh, some very substantial declines. Right. I, th I think one of the things that's interesting is when you look at valuation and you look across the board, it seems like most asset classes are relatively expensive. And part of that is due to rates being at zero. And, and part of the central bank uh, approach is to make cash as unattractive as possible and tell you they're going to keep it at zero for a long period of time to encourage you to spend the money, um, to invest it in, in something as, as a way to stimulate the economy. And that could, that could last for some time. So you, you could have expensive markets becoming more expensive because you have this push that we haven't seen in a long time. I'm just curious how yeah, you no, factor that in. That is a possibility, but, but you can't get blood out of a stone. If you, if you take a forest uh, in New England, and I'm a great fan of forestry, and you, you back up 10 years, 12 years, you could get 6% return. And then you push up the asset prices across the board and you come back 12 years later today and the same forest will give you a 3% return. The same with the Midwestern farm. It's gone from 6% to 3%. Now, that's been a wonderful ride in capital gains, but the price you pay is you don't make 6% a year compounded, which is very handy, you make three. 
And yes, if it goes up even higher, you'll make another capital gain. But the cost of that will be that the yield on the forest will go to two. You get my point. So the price of staying overpriced, high multiples, is you get a low dividend, uh, whether it's a farm or whether it's stocks. And that's what you see. So in the interim, you have this trade-off between lower yields on one side and capital gains on the other until uh, it peaks out. And then you're left with lower yields and declining prices uh, in the way we've experienced cycle after cycle since time immemorial. Right. So you can either you can either uh, earn the returns now and um, and suffer in the future, or you can postpone them until later. But over time, it's going to average out. When you buy overpriced assets, you get a guarantee of a low return. What you don't get is the guarantee uh, of being wiped out next week. But since you bring that topic up, my belief is that if you're trying to time the breaking of a bubble, the value is not that important. All of them are overpriced. And whether they're overpriced at 25 times earnings or 35 times earnings, or in Japan at 65 times earnings, uh, it's very difficult to work out in any sort of academic way since you're dealing with craziness uh, where it's going to peak. I much prefer to look for signs of truly crazy behavior because every bubble that really crashed and broke in a spectacular way, which most of them did, were, was preceded by craziness, by legendary stories. And uh, this was notably lacking as I wrote and talked about over the years of the 10-year bull market. And uh, it has not been lacking, really. I think you could agree uh, in, the, in this rally off the COVID low. We have seen not only a terrific rate of acceleration in the price rise, double the normal bull market, which is characteristic. That acceleration is characteristic of late stage bubble. But we've also seen wonderful craziness. The SPACs, which are a promise to use your money, give me your money and trust me, I'll do something useful with it, is, is a real echo of the South Sea bubble where we have such a spectacular opportunity, we can't reveal what the purpose of your money is yet. And they got lots of money and, and ran off with it. Uh, I'm not saying the SPACs will run off with your money, but I am saying it's a, a real testimonial to the speculative nature. Buying Hertz, a bankrupt company, and, and having it go up four, five, six times in a real hurry, and so on and so on. You, you read about your own. Uh, having a Tesla quadruple this year. Tesla, I own a Tesla. It's a wonderful car. I, I, I think they're a spectacularly interesting company. Uh, but are they four times the company they were before COVID? Hmm, I don't think so. The, these stories are everywhere. And, and they're what you need uh, before a bubble breaks. And we saw them in early 2000 and late 99. And we saw them in late 1929 before the crash. We saw them in Japan. And, uh, and here we are again. So I think this is an indicator, not a certainty, but a strong possibility that we are quite close uh, to the bubble breaking in terms of psychology, perhaps a matter 
of uh, weeks or months, not, not years. Yeah, it is interesting because a lot of the market behavior, in some ways you could argue, is rational when you're earning zero in cash, actually negative real yields, um, and bonds give you hardly anything, that, and you need to earn a return um, that you're going to move into assets and it's going to push the price up. So some of that you could rationalize, you know, not being crazy behavior, but being something that someone who's seeking returns would rationally do. And then you have the stories that you just described. And it does seem like the trend is moving towards more extreme outcomes. Um, and so it'll be very interesting to see how that nets out. And, and I am sympathetic to the argument, what, what am I supposed to do? The yields are so low. But the market doesn't care that uh, you don't have easy, safe investments to make. And, and your desperation is, is your own matter. Uh, what it does is focus on the difference between short-term and long-term. On the short-term, you can, you can say, I'm offered nothing by fixed income. I get something out of stocks, even though it's half what it seemed to be in the yield. Uh, it's still better than nothing, therefore I'll do it, and the prices rise. And that is a logic that you hear one way or the other all over the place. And then there's the argument in the long term, which is, in the end, all assets equal replacement cost. You know, house prices go up, but if you can build one at half price, you, you, put, a, you put a ceiling on it. If you can create a new company at, at half price, uh, I am a great fan of venture capital uh, for this reason. And uh, 60% of the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment is already in relatively early stage uh, of BC. And we are in the business of creating a new values from ground zero. Uh, we are not in the business of trading overpriced assets that have been bid up uh, because people are desperate. And that is a huge difference. Another difference, by the way, since I'm on the topic of BC, is that American capitalism in particular has become a little uh, fat and happy is how I like to describe it. Uh, it's too monopolistic. It has too much political influence. Uh, it gets the laws of the land changed in its favor, whether they're environmental or tax. And they've simply learned uh, to be less risky. Uh, why, why start an exciting but risky new enterprise when you can buy your own stock back? And so they do buy their own stock back. And, and that burden of starting the new enterprises passes down the pipeline uh, to venture capital. And we have never seen uh, more interesting opportunities. And uh, venture capital, not surprisingly, has a higher return than the stock market uh, because of the riskiness of each individual units. But if you have a diversified portfolio, uh, you have no more risk than the stock market, but you have a higher return. And the green VC part of it, which is springing out of the woodwork, is, is going to have a very high top line growth rate. Of course, electric cars are going to pound to death the growth rate of gasoline cars. Of course, uh, wind and solar is going to overwhelm uh, uh, gas electricity. And storage is going to be epic and energy efficiency. We are going to take tens of trillions of dollars uh, to green our economy, and we must do it. And those opportunities, unlike building walls along the Palisades with FDR and creating handsome-looking parks, the green investments that we should be making have a high societal return. When you insulate a northeastern house, 
you get a nice cash return saving for 30, 40 years. When you improve the electric grid, that would be a great idea. And, and China is surging ahead as we speak. You get a handsome return in savings. Instead of losing 15% at 500 miles, you lose 2% and so on and so forth. And we are letting China get a running start on transmission, on wind, where they dominate, on electricity, where they dominate, and even in electric cars. They have 300,000 electric buses, and the U.S. has 400. What are we thinking about? Yeah, there's a, there's a common saying, don't fight the Fed. I guess you, you can add to that, don't fight Mother Nature. That, that it's a tailwind that you can certainly profit from. And, and I've, I've spent my entire life fighting the Fed, frankly. And what I will say is this, that typically the Fed wins many more rounds than we do, than we have. But in the end, uh, we've had a knockout. The, in, right. in the end, the Fed has not been able to keep the tech bubble going indefinitely. It sent it over the 21 times earnings of 1929 and sent it up to 35 but it couldn't go on indefinitely. Even Japan that went to 65, the price they paid uh, when you finally knocked it out was here we are 31 years later, not even faintly close to the high of 1989. If you go into their real estate market, which was an even bigger bubble, I think the biggest bubble, including the Sassy bubble ever, or tulips, um, they, they went down for 30 years and now they're bottoming out maybe but they're bottoming out in, in central city prices at a quarter of where they came from. The land under the Empress Palace in 1989-90 was indeed worth the state of California, to give you some idea. We spent a day or two checking it out. It really was true. And the price you pay for that is you could be 50 years later and still not back to that level again. Yeah, so, so don't fight the Fed, don't fight Mother Nature. And when the two go head to head, in what you just described, gravity usually wins. When, when, you hit, when you hit too high, you're coming down. It doesn't matter if you're the Yeah, player. I would say don't fight the Fed if you're a short-term player. But if you're a long-term player, you, you, you have to be prepared to fight the Fed on occasions. And, and I'd like to give you an example of, of the difference between short-term and long-term, and that is I, I've been a, a fanatic on, on climate change for 20 years, but it was only in 07 uh, that I first uh, wrote a paper uh, urging people to take it seriously. And what, what has happened since then? We, we could never say that the next quarter or the next year was going to be uh, troublesome for oil stocks, which is, if you will, the anti-climate portfolio. But when the smoke cleared, by yesterday, the oil as a percentage of the S&P had come down from 25% in 1982 and 16% in 08 to 2.5% yesterday. This is the biggest loss of value in the history of the major groups of the S&P that goes all the way back into the 20s. Uh, it's really been remarkable. And yet you never knew when it was going to happen. No one ever made a case that the next year or two would be such a bloodbath. But you were on the wrong side of history if you owned the oil stocks. Now you can't, it's too late now, the, the last miserable two and a half percent, you can't get rich going short that even 
on the way down from 25 and, and 15. But what a, what a good demonstration of the long-term, slow-burning, who knows what the time will be, but you know in 10 or 15 years it will bite. And that's what the rest of climate change looks like today. You don't know how fast it will move. You don't know when the US government will wake up and start being a leader once again, uh, but it will probably all happen and, and it will go in bursts. And some of, the, some of the time it will be much faster and, than you imagine. But you will come back in 10 or 15 years and you will see that we have made an enormous transition to a green economy. We will win technologically. The problem we're dealing with on climate change is not whether we will win, uh, but whether the world will still be worth having when we win. It's the damage that's accumulating day by day already, as you can see around you with the fires in Australia and California and the number of hurricanes, uh, two at a time for the first time ever. And the, the amount of flooding, which is the single most reliable part, uh, heavy floods everywhere. And the, and the threat that poses to uh, global uh, agriculture, by the way. Yeah, we, we have the tools to succeed. It's just a matter of, will we employ them early enough, right? Yes, That's a, a, absolutely, by the way. Thank you. That's a good summary. Um, so we, we've talked a little bit about the unique nature of the current economic downturn being you know, virus-driven and the extraordinary policy response of zero rates, uh, printing money, uh, unprecedented deficit spending. How do, you, how do you see this ending? And does this, does this end, is this a happy ending or is it a, a, something that is gonna mark history? Well, I shouldn't pretend to be unbiased at being a green. I'm not, a poli I'm not into politics, but I am into greenery. And that has dragged me willy-nilly into politics. And, um, but if we have a democratic administration, uh, we will have deficit spending, which will be great. And a lot of it will be green, which will be even better and very high return. If the globe was to embark on a massive green stimulus program, which it should, it's necessary. But if it does it, it will give a shock to the economic system that may kick us out of the rather dreary, slow declining growth rates of the last 20 years. This has not been our finest age. We have been carried on the broad back of China uh, and India and so on. Uh, but the developed world has been slowly but steadily losing its growth rate. And one of the reasons is that after the financial crash, we became too jittery about deficit spending, which is I think a big mistake, quite unnecessary. As long as inflation is not really gathering steam, uh, when, you, when you find yourself facing a slowing global economy, you have to kick it in the tail. And it needs uh, a massive uh, government stimulus on a sustained basis. And what an opportunity to match that with the massive spending we need to green the economy. You end up with healthy air, uh, no particulate matter, uh, which takes years off everybody's lives and, and, and kills several million people a year in, in China uh, from coal and so on and diesel. What an opportunity to have a win-win. Yes, thank you. Uh, you know, we, we've been talking high level. Let, let's zoom in for a second. 
Uh, you're you know, a famed value investor. That's been your investment style for, for a long time. Uh, we, we've noticed value has underperformed growth for about a decade. Uh, there's a 35-point spread this year, which is uh, fairly remarkable and noteworthy. Um, do you view this as a buying opportunity of a lifetime, at least on a relative basis? Or does this spread indicate something as permanently different? Meaning, is, is this time different given, given you know, the, the growth of technology and, and the changes we're going through? How do you view all that? A few years ago, I, I debated uh, Jim Grant, who called me an apostate uh, amongst value managers for uh, hedging about this time is different. And uh, I maintain that the foremost dangerous words, this time is different, should be replaced by the five most dangerous words, which is this time is never different. That is a very dangerous idea to think that you can never have important permanent changes. And I think almost everything has changed since 2000. So the certainties that we used to have no longer exist. But that was five years ago. That was before the most massive move against value. On any, on any way you care to measure it now, we are off the scale. So I don't think a value is as dependable and useful a weapon as it was for 70 years prior to 2000. But I think it's a very handy uh, weapon when you push the parameters so far uh, that it hits historical lows against uh, growth stocks. So we may not snap back the 120% I would have calculated uh, 20 years ago, but we are going to have a very big uh, reversal in favor of value stocks sooner or later. And um, I think we can be pretty safe about that. And one of the things that uh, comes down to uh, the nature of, of the fangs, the fangs are a, a very interesting subset and uh, uh, well worth anyone studying because they're unique in many ways. There's never been, there's been the occasional company in the past that looked a little fangy, but there's never been a whole clutch of uh, eight or nine in the US and two or three in China that become the biggest companies in the world. That uh, they, they snatch uh, asset value out of thin air. They generate earnings on almost no asset value. They're all about intellectual capital. They are unbelievably disruptive and they move very fast. So these are very special companies and they're worth a lot of money, but they have also been bid up and bid up, and eventually, uh, even the best companies uh, can become uh, overpriced. I don't recommend necessarily going short of the fangs, but I do recommend uh, owning as few U.S. equities as you can face. Uh, emerging equities, emerging markets, are not only at an unprecedented low relative, but they are actually quite cheap, absolutely, uh, compared to the U.S., and, and on their own. And, and who are they? They're China, who uh, is going to represent, according to the World Bank, over 30% of the entire world's growth over the next 20 years. And India, um, which is going to be an increasingly important player. And then you have the Brazils and the Russias and, 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 and so on. Uh, collectively, they are much uh, the bigger part now of the global GDP. China, in real terms, is much the biggest uh, economy in the world, very substantially faster than the U.S., and gaining another 
10% this year in a single year, give or take. <clears throat> These things uh, move very fast. And um, I think a bet on emerging markets is really betting the future uh, uh, against the past. And uh, the only thing that makes life interesting outside emerging uh, are, are, are the fangs, uh, intellectually interesting, but when they've gone up 10 times in a hurry, uh, you have to say it's intellectually more interesting than it is financially interesting. Yeah, uh, I think people often forget that markets are a discounting machine. And you know when you have consensus views in one direction or another, it's very possible that it's either fully discounted in the current price or over-discounted, which is probably more often the case. And, and you do get that sense today where you know, nobody likes value, everybody loves growth. Even I'm seeing value managers cheat into growth and buying things that are growthy in their value portfolios. And so you're starting to see some of those signs. And I know historically that's been the precursor to a turn. Are you, are you seeing um, similar um, evidence of that? Yes, although I have to confess for a 30-year a uh, tendency to cheat in the sense that I think it, the best value metric is a dividend discount model where you give them full credit for high stable returns and uh, intellectual property and uh, our claim to fame in our first quant funds is that we owned um, Microsoft in our value stream, uh, in the top decile of value, uh, from the day it appeared as, as a, um, a stock that met, met our size limit uh, until uh, late 99, when it finally got overpriced enough uh, that it drifted into uh, decile two and was sliced uh, month by month out of the portfolio so that by June 2000, it had gone. And it, it, it of course sold at many multiples of book but it had a high stable return and you need that kind of model. And we have that kind of approach and we look at uh, the Amazons or uh, alphabets of the world. And what we find is that even allowing for those as best we can, uh, they're, they're still overpriced for the record. And the reason I, I recommend not going short is more that shorting is a desperately difficult game you can never be certain that they don't, that the fangs and the growth stocks put in one last push that will shake you loose. You simply will not be able to take the pain as a short seller. Yeah, because you're waiting for the consensus to finally agree with you. Yes. And, and who and, knows and how long that'll take. If, if that's right. If you, if you have real confidence in a 10-year story, uh, which I, I did in climate change and, and anti-oil, and I do today in climate change and, and emerging uh, and, and, and in a way, anti-fans. But 10-year arguments are not enough to justify short sales. And, 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 and the desert is <laughs> littered with the bones of people who have not learned that lesson. That's right. And we can, we can all learn from that experience. Um, so we, we, we've talked about uh, the unique environment in which we live. And given today's, you know, actually very unique risks, uh, we have a, obviously a virus, we have an upcoming election, um, which could be uh, significant, um, obviously unusual monetary fiscal policy uh, to, at, at extremely high levels. Uh, we have this rise of populism as the, as the wealth gap is growing. 
Um, how, what's your, what's your best suggestion for investors in how to protect themselves given this wide range of potential outcomes? How should they think about investing just from a high level? Let me just start on, on the virus, if you'd let me. Sure. I have to confess to being the biggest statistical nerd that you will ever meet on this topic. And every morning when I wake up, I, I check all the data. <laughs> and one of the many things it, it's brought home to me is what, are, what is the great strength of Homo sapiens um, that really singles us out? It's, it's our ability uh, to focus on optimistic thoughts and avoid unpleasant ones. It really is. It's what enables us to have South Sea bubbles and, and tech bubbles. It's what enables us to ignore the downside of climate change uh, and, until it bites us increasingly. And, and it's evident in, in the virus. Now the virus has, has, a, has a record keeping mechanism. It's the number of people who die per million. Um, people who are infected um, is a much woolier number, but deaths are pretty well recorded around the world. And what we find is there are three orders of magnitude on this grade system. It's as if it goes from A to Z rather than A, A to D. And uh, at the bottom end, uh, where you have the best performers, you have Sri Lanka, Thailand, Taiwan, um, and Vietnam. And, and they have less than one person per million. Um, Taiwan has seven people out of 26 million, seven people who died. They didn't have unfair advantages in, in, in timing. They, they live right next to China. They are a part of China, arguably, but they had people arriving. They had to deal with that. The, the, the cheating they did is the vice president of the country is an epidemiologist, can you believe? Uh, so um, that was not the least, perhaps, of their advantages. But all the Southeast Asian countries had enormous discipline in personal behavior, uh, the willingness to wear masks and do what they're told and keep distance and so on. It was not a draconian China fashion. They did brilliantly. But Taiwan did 10 times better than China. Uh, without, without uh, police everywhere. Uh, so you can take care of that. Japan, who, who also did very well, did very well, not because the government was competent. In fact, most of them think it was incompetent, uh, but because the individuals were prepared to carry the whole thing on their broad shoulders. They all wore masks. They all kept distance. They all respected uh, each other and society and listened uh, to the, the science that was involved. So they were collectively br brilliant and they have a very strong social contract compared to some of us. But 10 times worse than that, you have, um, you have Japan is 10 times worse than, than uh, Vietnam and Taiwan and, and uh, Uruguay, Cuba, really a pretty, pretty good experience. 10 times worse than that. In round numbers, you have uh, Germany, um, Denmark, and, and the global average, which is about 120 deaths per million. That's 120 
compared to 0.3 of a person in Taiwan, uh, but still a measure of competence. And then at the top end, uh, you have uh, Massachusetts, um, New York, and New Jersey with an average of 1,500 per million. 1,500 against 120 or 125 average against 10 in Japan, against less than one in Sri Lanka and Taiwan. A thousand times plus. How is it possible? But more impressive than the numbers is the ability to avoid the numbers available Every morning on the dot, Johns Hopkins, I have yet to meet a Massachusettsian who realizes that our numbers are so bad that were we a separate country, we'd be the worst in the, in the world, uh, taking solace only in the other countries of New York and New Jersey. Quite remarkable. I've heard the mayor of Boston represent a pretty good effort, don't you think? I've heard the governor of Massachusetts uh, get one step further than that and, and, and say flat out that we've done a pretty good job. A pretty good job, you're just worse than the other 200 countries on the planet. That, so that is a, a, an incredible testimonial uh, to uh, the willingness to be manipulated into thinking that you're doing quite well, even by the liberal press. Why is that, one wonders. And, and once you've processed that, you realize how easy it is to believe nonsense about the stock market if we can't even get something as serious as the virus right. The election, of course, as I've said, offers a potential, I believe, for an increase in government spending and green spending, which might turn out on a 10-year uh, basis or so to be exactly what is needed uh, to jumpstart, to give a little electric shock to the rather a dopey uh, developing, sorry, developed world, rich world, which has been steadily slowing down to desperately low growth rates. Without that, if we continue on the flight path we've been on, I think 1%, maybe one and a quarter is the kind of growth rate uh, in GDP per capita that we're looking at for the next 20 years. And with it, we might break out and revert for a while, for a decade or two, uh, as we re-gear re, re ourselves to a green economy. So that would be very bullish long-term. In the short term, uh, it might get people so nervous about debt, which doesn't, doesn't worry me as much as other people, and we might see a decline in PEs. And the other thing is that government spending done correctly, very good for the economy, very good for workers, which in the U.S., have not had a real increase per hour work since the mid 1970s, can you believe, where even dopey Europe has more than doubled and, and China and Vietnam has more than tentupled and so on. Um, it's, um, it is a bit of a pickle. Anyway, um, your turn. Okay, so obviously there's tremendous uncertainty, uh, big forces at play, uh, going back to, uh, the, the original topic of what do investors do? So, so you're sitting there, you have a portfolio and you're trying to achieve a reasonable return um, and you have this wide range of potential outcomes. Well, where, do you, where do you invest? Are you just looking for things that are cheap 
or do you need hedges in place or how do you, what's, what's your advice for uh, our viewers? Um, my advice, really quite simple. You uh, emphasize emerging markets. Um, you de-emphasize the U.S. If you have to own the U.S., uh, you, you go for uh, deep value. I did not say that uh, three years ago, five years ago. Um, but I think now, after this extreme year of over 20% deviation, we really are in bubble territory in growth versus value. Uh, you, should, you should do that. But if I had to choose between doing that and avoiding the U.S. entirely, I would do the latter. Uh, secondly, and what the Grantham Foundation does, is I would own where you can VC. Uh, and in our case, we can own uh, early stage. And we are over 60%. We target 70% early stage VC. And of that, we target up to a half in the green uh, variety. Uh, for not just for mission reasons, but because I think the top line opportunities will be way over average, even in the VC uh, universe for, for a long time. Yeah, you, you, you've been producing these seven-year forecasts, asset class forecasts for a couple decades. And, and, I've, and I've looked at every one you've done, I think it's probably at least 20 years. And the current one is among the most depressing that I've seen where expected returns are in many cases negative, real, uh, across the board, and there's a few pockets of, of value. Um, it, it's, it's quite depressing. Um, and, well, and so, you, uh, only need, you only need one big asset class, by the way, uh, to get rich. Emerging markets, as I said, is way over half of the global GDP. It is growing far faster and because of the size of China, it's guaranteed to do that. It's going to have a much better growth rate this year under stress, much better than the GDP growth of, of the uh, developed world. So, and it's got 26 countries in. It covers every industry you would want. Uh, why, why would you be moaning and groaning uh, when you have such a, a good opportunity? It's 10 times earnings. It, it's it's cheap. It, it, it's a great opportunity. And if you insist on, on the US, buy, buy venture capital, which is the last truly exceptional feature of American exceptionalism. By and large, in most of the things that matter to me, I have to make the sick joke that yes, America is exceptional. It's become exceptionally bad in that we have the worst life expectancy, the worst morbidities, uh, the worst social measures of almost anything, children to 16-year-olds, number of people in prison, number of people who get shot, on and on and on. It's quite distressing. However, venture capital, we're the biggest, we're the best. And where does the talent go these days? The really best and brightest don't go to Goldman Sachs, sorry, Goldman Sachs, anymore, uh, like they did in the financial uh, bubble. Uh, they, they, they want to get into the VC business to be mixing uh, with things that really matter, and, and many of them to be actually starting their own enterprise, to do something that is useful, uh, exciting, and, and will make them rich as well. What, what a great opportunity. I warmly recommend that to any young person uh, who wants to be where the action is and, and where the significance is. Who wants to do a useless job? 
and VC is the most useful of any job in finance. Yeah, well, one of the one of the uh, uh, byproducts of cutting rates to zero and and pushing asset prices up is leverage is is extremely cheap, and and if used wisely, can really boost returns. Um, and I guess venture is 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 a part of the way to play that. Uh, how do you think about leverage and being able to borrow at you know one percent or below and investing in something you know and in 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 terms of not fighting the Fed, not fighting Mother Nature? It seems like if you can do it without without uh, and survive the trough, that there's some upside potential there. Yeah, I mean, ironically, <clears throat> leverage plays the least role in venture capital. <clears throat> Most of them have relatively little leverage. It's it's equity money. It's kind of honest and straightforward, if you will. But why would you not take long-term cheap money if you can? Why would you not lock in a mortgage at 3%? Um, surely one expects to be able to do better than 3%. Even in terms of your career earnings, you might expect uh, to grow them, uh, or a lot of you anyway at over 3%. And investing with a 3% target does not seem uh, intimidating to me. The old, the old rates of 15% maybe will never come back again, but 3% I think we can do. So why would you not take the leverage? And of course they do. And why would you be so worried about it? Let me just point out that, that debt is simply double, double entry bookkeeping. For every dollar of debt there is someone who is owed a dollar. Why would I care if every other Japanese owns every other Japanese tons of money so that in total, the debt looks intimidating by historical standards? Yet from a US point of view, looking at internal debt, it's totally irrelevant and has proved to be, by the way, they have been moaning about Japanese debt levels for my entire career and it has never had material consequences that I can see. They have plenty of things going wrong from time to time, but none of them have really come down uh, to uh, uh, leverage. So I, uh, leverage does not intimidate me. Um, what intimidates me is, is interest cost coverage. And if the rates are low, uh, you can handle it. And when you look at interest rate coverage, you find that the entire corporate system is in pretty darn good shape, well above average. If you look at the aggregate sovereign standard by the US, um, if everything was owed at today's rates, we would be far, far better off than normal, uh, normal of the last 50, 60 years anyway. So do not let conservative uh, politicians and a few conservative economists uh, persuade you that debt is a bone crusher. It simply is not. And even inflation is not that deadly. Um, a moderate amount of inflation is completely compatible with a healthy economy, faster growth rates, and better treatment of the workers who have been sadly neglected in the US in particular. Yet, yeah, speaking about inflation, we haven't seen significant inflation since you started GMO in the 1970s. And the Fed has vowed to avoid deflation at all costs and create inflation using all the tools at its disposal. Do you think they'll ultimately be successful? Because 
uh, obviously they have a lot of tools to use, but when you look across the world, you look at Europe, you look at Japan, they have a lot of tools as well. And they've been trying for a long time without success. Uh, where, where do you see this ending? Well, we, we have been gently sliding into deflation as a global economy for a couple of decades or longer. So I am actually very proud to say that I wrote quarterly letters for 20 years and I never featured inflation as a major risk. That, I've checked that, it's absolutely true. Um, it wasn't a major risk, it hasn't been a major risk, and as far as I'm concerned, it isn't a major risk. However, at least now for the first time uh, since uh, 82 when long bond peaked out at 16%, can you believe? At least for the first time we can now sit down over coffee in the old days, put our feet up and have a conversation about the potential for inflation to come back. If, if you have a setback to the real economy, both supply and demand, as we've had from COVID, and you're throwing money at it to stimulate it, and you're throwing government works at it to stimulate it, you can reasonably talk about the possibility of inflation coming down, of inflation finally coming back, that's what I was trying to say, into the equation. What we should expect maybe is that, particularly in raw materials, that one here and one there, food will become scarce and then they'll address that and it will pop up in other places and so on. But to work through to wages where inflation really starts to escalate, it's going to, um, it's going to take a long time because uh, we've had such miserable deflation in the typical average wage for so long that we are not in immediate da danger of having them uh, spiral out of control. Also, the power of unions um, have been eaten away by the force of circumstances and the force of, of uh, right-wing politics deliberately for uh, 50, 60, 70 years also. Uh, and that, that makes inflation much less likely than in, in the 70s. Yeah, it's, it's fairly remarkable when you look back and you zoom out a little bit and you look at interest rates near zero for over a decade, trillions of dollars of printing and inflation rates are falling across the world. It's, it, tells, it shows you how, much, how significant the deflationary forces are in the, back, in the backdrop. It and, also says to me, and I know I'm saying this now for the third time, <laughs> is that the difference between monetary that, that you're describing and fiscal government spending programs, uh, which we really have not tried much in the last 20 years. We've been very nervous, particularly since the, the housing bust. Um, and we have to get over that. Otherwise, we will revert uh, to the slow, steady unraveling period. And I fear that. Um, much better to push too hard on government spending than too little, which we have done here and there, particularly in Europe in the last 10 years. We've really missed a great opportunity. So uh, bring, bring on the left-wing Democrats. Let's have some real government spending and let's make sure for once that it's spun uh, towards greening the economy uh, and economic investments that will pay off for decades to come. And uh, I don't mind a bit of inflation. 
it, it, it doesn't threaten the economy. What it does is it threatens PEs. And that's something that you have to be aware of. Uh, ben Inker and I wrote a model, designed a model uh, 16 years ago to explain PEs. And it's factor number one, actually it's almost co-equal, is inflation and profit margins. Anything that makes the market feel comfortable is associated coincidentally, incidentally, not, not predictively, but coincidentally. If you're comfortable, the PEs are high. If you're uncomfortable today, the PEs are low. And inflation makes you uncomfortable. High profit margins make you comfortable. And uh, the market today sits just about on the uh, explanatory line. That is not a prediction, however, that's an explanation. The, the prediction would be, are the profit margins likely to get whacked on a global basis, on a US basis? Is society likely to turn against uh, the fangs and the social apps and so on? What is the potential uh, to regress back towards more normal profit margins? And what is the potential uh, for the virus uh, to have a second round attack and bring down the profit margins? So the market is very vulnerable uh, to profit margins, very vulnerable uh, to the, even the hint of inflation. Uh, but in terms of the reality, um, The economy is, is, is very, very durable in the face of anything up to intermediate uh, inflation levels. Three, four, five percent. It won't affect the economy, but it will knock down price earnings ratios. So file that away in your brain and, and stay tuned. Sounds good. Well, the, the Fed is certainly trying to achieve that. Uh, Jeremy, thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom with us. I always learn something new when I listen to you. Thank you for listening to the Master Speaker Series podcast produced by Evoke Advisors. You may email us with questions or recommended guest speakers at info at evokeadvisors.com. Please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities, trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.